Hi there, Duncan Green here, armed with a fresh cup of tea and ready to take you through this week's links on From Poverty to Power. Started off with um, the usual links I liked. I won't, uh, there's a few there, but the one I'd pick out there was a, a positive one because I think right now we're all needing in need of positive stories. This was about how the extraordinary achievements of Bangladesh uh, in beating climate disaster deaths, um, a study of how their disaster risk reduction has just outpaced the growing severity of the, of the floods and the climate crisis they face. So fewer and fewer people are dying because of good preparation. And I think a lot of people are looking at Bangladesh and saying the rest of the world, including the rich countries, can learn a lot from the way they've managed this process. So I thought that was a, a nice, a nice positive story. And then a lot of the rest of the week was dominated by a perennial subject, research for impact. So this is, you know, a lot of organizations do research. They may mean different things by, by, what they, by the word research. But what they're doing is, you know, people are going out, uh, researching, writing papers, and they want someone to read those papers and to act upon those papers, whether it's changing attitudes, reporting it in the press, changing policies, changing laws, or influencing beliefs and you know, social norms, any number of things you may want to achieve through your research. But you know, and certainly in my part of the world, very few people just do research for its own sake. You know, I mean, that's perfectly legitimate to say, I'm just interested in this particular issue and I'm going to research it. But most people in the aid and development business, I think, actually want to change the world with their research. And so I get asked a lot because I've written a couple of things and because I write about it on the blog and because I used to run the research team in, in Oxfam. How do you do that? How do you do research for impact? And I had two conversations this week and I wrote them both up because they were particularly interesting. The first was with Save the Children, uh, with their advocacy team. Um, and they asked me to talk to them about research for influence. Uh, and the good thing I did was not talk too long because the Q&A, the question and answer bit was much better. And what, what I like about these things is, you know, you're, people are throwing questions at you and it's quite daunting in a way, but it's also, you know, it's quite exciting. I don't have a very exciting life and this is about as exciting as it gets where you have to think on your feet, respond to questions, and, you know, and sometimes they throw up something either totally new or more often just like a, a new angle on something, a new tweak, a new connection. So I love those Q&A sessions. So I'll talk you through the ones I wrote up for SAVE. So SAVE said, we're shifting to more community-oriented, localised ways of working, including in how, why and where we generate evidence. Are there any principles that you think are particularly important for a hyper-localised way of working? So that got me thinking and sort of bringing in ideas from, from the aid uh, literature on, on, on localization. So I think hyperlocal lends itself to uh, looking at implementation of policies, for example. You know, every news piece on the television starts with an interview with somebody who's been affected by the latest government policy decision, usually negatively. Um, and so localized research is ideal in terms of giving you the, the, that sort of content, which you can then use to you know, put those people in front of cameras and get them talking to the media. I'm also a big fan of something uh, in French is called témoignage, which is translated as bearing witness. So I think French NGOs in particular, like uh, Médecins Sans Frontières, um, have, have made a thing about we are just going to capture people's voices. We're not going to process them. We're not going to number crunch them. We're just going to 
bear witness, help, help them bear witness to what's going on on the ground. And if you do that consistently and rigorously and well over time, people come to you and say, okay, what are you hearing? And that's what happens with MSF. I'm also, uh, and I've written about this a lot on the blog, so apologies if you've heard about it already, a huge fan of something, of some a new methodology called Governance Diaries, which the Institute of Development Studies is systematizing, and I've been a bit involved with it initially at least. And these are things where you look at issues from the bottom up in a systematic way. So instead of just going out and doing a survey, you work with, you, you get a group of local students to keep going back to the same families every month and asking them about a particular issue. I've seen them done on governance, on disputes, on water use, um, on finance. And what you do is over time, people uh, start to trust the students, get to know them. They start to reveal things which they wouldn't reveal to a one-off survey. Uh, and you build up this really interesting picture from the bottom. And I think there's huge, still huge potential. I was talking to IDS about this only uh, earlier this afternoon on uh, uh, spreading that methodology as a way, as a sort of counter to top-down research or a complement, I would say, to top-down research where people are you know, doing the big number crunches and saying this is what's going on. This really looks through people's eyes in a way that actually gets you, gets you somewhere. Next question for Save was, do you separate out advocacy products, you know, pieces of paper, advocacy from research, or do you combine them? And I said, well, actually, it doesn't really matter because the underlying trend is that we have less and less control over how our products are consumed. You know, back in the day, I remember a think tank or NGO would be stuffing envelopes with their latest report and sending them to individual decision makers. So you knew who would receive what and hopefully read it. Um, you could segment the market, but you can't do that now. Everyone can see everything. It's all online. If you say something that is clearly not backed by the evidence because it's a piece of fundraising, so who cares? Someone will get it and you'll be punished. So actually, everything is everything. You know, everything is advocacy. Everything is, is, is campaigns. Everything is fundraising. So you have to be aware of that. In Oxfam, some people say we are publishing too much. I'm not convinced. Uh, although I do feel sorry for the poor people who have to do all the editing and proofreading. That's true. Compare it to restaurants. You know, do we say, oh, there are too many restaurants? No. So in terms of the consumers, then no one's going to read everything Oxfam produces. They're going to arrive at things and then like them or not like them. And then if they like them, they're going to talk about them to their friends. So basically, you've got a, a Darwinian selection process, which is pretty similar to a market selection process. And the good stuff will rise to the top. And we can't predict in advance what stuff will get traction. So actually chucking out a load of papers, providing you have a sort of decent quality control, is a good idea, not a bad idea. And I think that this idea that we're publishing too much is partly a little bit old school and thinking that somebody's sitting there reading every Oxfam paper going, oh, I can't bear it, there are too many of these. That's just not how it works anymore. Next question from Save. You mentioned that it's better to respond to debates and events rather than try and impose your own agenda. But we have priorities that are part of long-term consultations and multi-year strategies. For example, we have three big priorities, climate change, COVID and conflict. How do we strike that balance? And I, I agree that you can't just chase the latest event. You look cheap, it damages your credibility. But with topics as broad as climate change, COVID and conflict, you can find an angle on pretty much anything that's in the news, anything that's in, in front of politicians. So yeah, you've got to have criteria for when you go small and say to a couple of politicians, look, this might be interesting, or when there's a really big 
relevant shock or crisis when you drop everything and say, right, this is a climate issue. We're going to dust off all our climate research and go big on this, even though we were actually working on conflict next week. Save on relationships. And I always talk a lot about the importance of relationships in research for impact. How do we go about building those? What proportion of our relationships should be with people in our sector or with civil servants? And I said, well, try and build reputations during peacetime. You know, go to the webinars, interview decision makers, and then they're more likely to listen to you during a crisis when decision makers are more open to new ideas. But it is a fourth road bridge job. You know, that old story that as soon as you finish painting the fourth road bridge, uh, you've got to go back to st and start all over again because it's already corroded at the beginning. Um, because churn is so high. Churn is higher, I think, amongst politicians than amongst civil servants, but it's still really high amongst civil servants. And it's so frustrating. You just get to build a relationship with someone in a decision-making position, senior civil servant, politician, and then they moved on to a completely different department, completely relevant to what you're working on. Um, so it is very difficult. If you can build your reputation as an institution, that probably shortcuts, yeah, it saves a lot of time. <clears throat> Next question from Save. Why is it so hard for our NGOs to work with think tanks and universities? It seems so obvious, and yet we struggle. This was one of the things that absolutely baffled me the whole time I was head of research at Oxfam. You know, we kept trying to work with universities. We knew them as friends. Um, and it was always, and it was just very, very difficult to build alliances. I think it's got to be a bit better since then. Um, and you do get more sort of uh, deep alliances growing up. Just been on one called Action for Empowerment and Accountability, where Oxfam and IDS and a bunch of other universities and, and NGOs and think tanks are all working together on a similar issue. But it's still really hard. So I guess my answers are academic timelines are, di are different. They're much longer. You know, they're producing peer-reviewed journal papers, which take a year to go from final draft to publication. You know, whereas NGOs are always, you know, what's next, what's next, what's next? Um, and their incentive systems are different. You know, you don't get rewarded in academia for getting published in the press or for publishing something with an NGO, you get rewarded for peer-reviewed journals and books published by university presses. So that's changed a bit because the research excellence framework, at least in the UK, but also similar things in other countries, has said, look, we're only going to, governments are saying we will fund you, but we want proof of impact. So that, hence, that's why I'm doing all these talks to universities, among other things. Um, but even then, Academics often try and instrumentalize NGOs, get NGOs to come and join them and support, you know, disseminate their research. So it's quite this, uh, this horrible word co-creation is still quite rare, I think. Uh, if you really wanted to invest in this kind of stuff, I think you've got to, you know, give PhDs access to your data, exchange staff. And I suppose my role as professor in practice of uh, the LSE is a bit like that, building a link between LSE and Oxfam, but it's slow and frustrating. And people are scared. People are scared in academia. People are scared in NGOs. They're scared of different things. And a lot of fear, that fear stops people collaborating. And I do think there's a space in the middle, what, what people sometimes call knowledge entrepreneurs, uh, and I call think tanks, people who talk to both sides, who talk to the NGOs, talk to the academics, and can sort of see the commonalities and, and pull them together. I think that's definitely a good way to do it. Next post in the week was uh, uh, by a colleague at Oxfam called Helen Wishart. It's called Queer Existence is Resistance, Understanding the Rising Tide of COVID-Related LGBTQIA plus 
discrimination as gender-based violence. And this was part of a series of posts uh, to coincide with the 16 days uh, on gender-based violence, which is just coming to an end. It's quite a long post. Uh, yeah, I think you should read it yourself. It's quite nuanced and subtle, but I'll read you uh, a couple of pieces. What do LGBTQIA plus rights have to do with gender-based violence? Well, a lot, actually. Think about it. Patriarchal culture exists on the basis of an assumed gender binary that reinforces a power dynamic. There's man and there's woman, and man is greater than woman. Relationships between men and women are socially defined in relation to each other, reinforcing the binary. We can understand queer phobia, discrimination against LGBTQIA plus people, to be a form of gender-based violence. Those people are oppressed because our existence is a threat to patriarchy, and that oppression is part of the same toxic ideology that is held against heterosexual and cisgender women who refuse to conform to patriarchal gender norms. And then Helen gives a whole series of examples of, of what she's talking about, and she concludes thus. All of this serves to show that our approach to activism against gender-based violence cannot leave queer people behind. We have an opportunity to strengthen our commitment to ending gender-based violence through committing in a meaningful way to LGBTQIA inclusion in our work. That inclusion requires investment, strategic partners, an awareness of colonial legacies of discrimination, and making room for queer leadership in a space in which we have historically been excluded. The case I am making, this is Helen, is not just that an intersectional approach to feminist action requires integration of LGBTQIA people and is the right thing to do. Moreover, the reality is that a feminist movement that is not LGBTQIA inclusive will never truly be effective. Queer existence is resistance. It provides radical potential for rethinking what gender is and why it plays the role that it does in society. And that potential could give freedom to us all. Fourth post of the week, back to research for impact. Sorry if you're bored by research for impact, go and do something else. But this one was really interesting because again, I was on the webcast doing my PowerPoint um, and this was with a, but it was with a group of researchers from eight countries working with across eight countries in the Himalayas. And they're trying to, uh, you know, um, it, it's a group called Ikimod and it's a network of think tanks working to protect people, environment and culture in those eight countries. So they asked me to record the conversation and they produced an accident and that produced an accidental podcast. So if you want to listen to a 40 minute podcast of, of this conversation, feel free. It's on the, it's on the blog. But I did a partial, you know, tidied up transcript to make me look more uh, more lucid than I actually was, as one does, um, for those who prefer the written word. And I'd focused on things that add something to this week's, to the other, the other post about the conversation with Save the Children. So the first question I got was going to scale. We are quite successful in implementing small pilots across our region. In our next strategy, we want to consolidate that and try and work uh, or influence larger programs and policies based on innovation and proof of concept. How can we position ourselves for that scaling effort? And this is like that word scale, it comes up more and more and more. It's one of the you know buzzwords of the moment. And so I say, well, what I've seen at Oxfam is involving the targets, for example, local or national government, government officials in the governance of the pilots. So governance means you know, um, it's no good doing the pilots and then trying to convince the decision makers afterwards. Get them involved in the steering group, get them involved in making decisions, get them involved in the project, 
interview them, ask them to review drafts, get them involved before publication, and then they're much more likely to actually take the report and act on it. And the, 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 the penny dropped for me on a visit to Vietnam, where I saw that we'd done just this on a project in the ethnic minority region, uh, uh, region Lao Cai in Vietnam. Um, we wanted to promote child-centered methodology because uh, the, the teaching was being done in the majority King language and uh, ethnic minority kids, especially girls, were dropping out uh, in huge numbers. And so we thought that a, a child-centered methodology in the ethnic, you know, the, the local language would be more effective. But instead of just doing it, publishing the report and giving it to the, the officials, we asked the officials to designate the, 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 the places, to be on the steering committee, all the things I've just said. And it was great because then we got some really good results from this work. And the officials read it. They said, this is brilliant. And it escalated all the way up till in the end, we, we ended up um, you know, rewriting the teacher's training manual across the whole of Vietnam, which is a phenomenal piece of influencing based on bringing the targets in early. In terms of scale, everyone is talking about it, but no one has the answer. But, if you're, but I can tell you what isn't the answer. If your pilot relies on a huge investment of time by incredibly skilled and committed people, you're going to have a problem scaling. When it tries to go to scale, less brilliant or committed people try and do it. They put in less time. They just want to follow, you know, jump through the hoops and the project doesn't work. And there are some attempts to make things go to scale with less reliance on brilliant committed people. And one of them is a really interesting one called social franchising, where you try and boil down the exercise the project into something that can be easily replicated because people call it a project in a box uh, and child line has done that in several countries um, very interesting option i think for people looking to go to scale the next question the importance of intel and i don't mean the uh, uh, telecoms company i mean intelligence a lot of our a lot of ikimod's work involves partnerships with think tanks in our eight member countries we need intel about what is happening in those countries, how policy is changing, and to identify windows of opportunity for influencing. How much should we invest in that? What is efficient? Should we be thinking about a dedicated team? And that kind of hit my buttons because I'm always a bit skeptical about dedicated teams. Because the first thing that happens is that everyone else says, oh, great, there's a team doing X, so we, can, we don't have to do X anymore. We can leave it to them. So it can actually be counterproductive across the organization as a whole. One thing is to work out who gathers the intelligence anyway because of their day job or just because they're interested in it. You know, some people are just well-connected, gossipy, like to go out and find out what's going on in government or in companies or whatever. And if you work with those people, work with the grain of your staff, that can be much easier, much better than trying to force introverts to go out and network because they just can't bear it and they won't do it. But I do think it has to be a continual function because you never know when an opportunity will, will arise, when a shock will hit, when a leadership change will happen. So you've got to be constantly on top of what is changing in the context. Next post. Next post, sorry. Next, next question. Building trust. How do we build trust with decision makers beyond generating social evidence? So I think people will trust you if they know you or they like you, which is something we never talk about. But it's really important. You know, if you can make people feel relaxed, make them laugh, it really helps. They think, oh, this person isn't a, you know, po-faced, boring, you know, finger-wagging person. This person is someone I actually like spending time with. They're much more likely to actually take a meeting with you. Um, 
They will trust you if you've played by the rules and not rushed off to the newspaper straight after the interview and told them everything the decision maker just said. I did that in my early career. I don't do it anymore. They will trust you if you help them when they, when they need help, not just when it suits your timetable. They will trust you if you disagree with them respectfully. Politicians can spot a yes man or woman rather than someone that they can trust to tell them difficult things or explain that they're wrong, but do it well and intelligently. Assertiveness is important, but it's really difficult, especially if you're shy. I'm actually quite shy and I'm hopeless at this. My voice gets wobbly. I sound a bit crazy. You need to practice. Next question. In, these were really good questions. I really enjoyed this, 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 this webinar. Influencing over the long term, what do you think is the best publication and advocacy strategy for a natural scientist to reach out to donors and governments, especially when nature-based pro projects only have impacts after 10 or 15 years and often have to be done at scale to work? So I think natural science gives you a big asset which is when talking to policymakers, they're quite possibly scared of you, especially economists who often have physics envy. They, yeah, at their heart of hearts, they wish they were physicists, really, because, you know, they have this idea that physics is all about constructing a model, making predictions, testing it, and then tweaking your model accordingly. It's really hard to do that in, econ in economics in a way that means something, because people are just messier than that. Um, you can use your authority as a natural scientist, and some donors really do trust natural science. I think one litmus test is do, does the donor in question uh, or the government in question have a chief scientific advisor? That's a good sign. And then this question about how do you work over the long term? That is a real problem. Politicians and donors have short term horizons. The planet has long term horizons. So find those donors or the people within those donors who get it and work with them to build up big examples of long-term, longitudinal programs. And one example I like is the Young Lives program, which is collecting data on children and young people, which has been running for 20 years in several countries. Um, I guess another option is if you can find natural experiments, you know, those things where you can, you can compare two communities or two bits of a country to learn something, that started before your research program, then you've got a longer time series. But also think about design. You know, a 15-year change process can be broken down into three five-year chunks. So why not try and do, you know, explain to the donor that you have this 15-year theory of change and here's your five-year plan or your three-year plan. And some donors, I've heard the Australians are interested in this, are starting to think about that and say, yeah, that works for us. We understand that you can't do everything in three to five years. But we want to see the short-term plan so we know you're not just messing about. And we want the long-term plan to show that you have this long-term theory of change. Next question. Strategy design. What's your overall advice to us developing our long-term strategy? Well, in my experience, strategies are really only useful to the people who are in the room when they are being drawn up. Once they're published and, you know, everybody, a big fanfare, look, we've got our new strategy for 2022 to 27. They're basically done. New people come into the organisation, they either don't understand them or they don't read them, they lie on the shelf. So what do you do to avoid that? Well, I'm a big fan of the strategy testing approach, which is pioneered, developed by the Asia Foundation, where they accept that all strategies are provisional and have a process and a timetable for updating them periodically. And the good thing about that is it means you're, you're allowed to have doubts and say, look, the strategy is not working. But you know when those doubts are going to be heard. So you don't just moan the whole time. You put them to one side and say, OK, we've got a strategy testing meeting in three months time. I'll raise this issue. But meanwhile, I'll get on with the day job. So it's, it's quite a nice compromise between sort of doubt and ambiguity and actually getting stuff done.
Um, it also gives donors comfort that you know what the, what you're doing, because that actually is quite hard to tell the difference between adaptive management, where you're changing in response to the environment and to new new learning and all the rest of it, and rubbish management, where you just keep changing because you're completely indecisive. So this helps give donors comfort that you are the former. I think also the, the yeah these are natural scientists I was talking to, so I told them to go and talk to the people working in other parts of the aid sector that have maybe done more thinking about this. And I pointed to the people working on governance, good governance and institutional reform, which is much more the area I work on. Um, people who are doing these things called adaptive management, thinking and working politically, doing development differently. And I've written about those endlessly on the blog, so I won't bore you with it now. Final point, final question. How do you ensure effective implementation across the organization on gender and youth. Slurp of tea, excuse me. Oh, yeah. <clears throat> it's getting cold. There's always a tension between mainstreaming and specialist units. Set up a specialist unit and everyone says, great, we can leave it to them. If you mainstream, you can end up with a tokenistic and it's worse for women and youth at the end of every paragraph. My experience is that it works best when you have organized women and youth either within the organization or through partners with a real voice in the organization. So they have the power to come up with suggestions and access decision makers within the organization. And the battle is never won, prepare for the long haul. But there's also an instrumentalist argument here. If you can show that involving women and youth gives better results, some of the obstacles may, be, may fall away. COVID is a shock that has empowered young people especially because so many organizations have moved to much more digital ways of working. And guess who's good at doing that? Young people. So all old technophobic troglodytes like me are suddenly finding themselves disempowered relative to young people who look witheringly at you and say, oh, just click on this, please. And that's actually quite a big, I'm sure across the sector, that's a significant or could be a significant shift in power towards youth. And that's something we have to harness and celebrate. And on that optimistic note, I'm going for a swim. Have a great weekend. Talk to you soon. Bye.